Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Diana reading from Thursday, August 31st edition of the Cape Cod Times. We'll start today's reading with the weather. Today, 72 degrees for the high, sunny and breezy, a nice end to August. For tonight, 56 degrees and clear. For Friday, 72 degrees for the high, 58 degrees for the low, beautiful with plenty of sun. For Saturday, pleasant with plenty of sun, also, 75 degrees for the high, 63 degrees for the low. Sunday, comfortable with sunshine and a few clouds. The high of 78 degrees, the low will be 66 degrees. And for Monday, Labor Day, sunshine and humid, the high of 79 degrees and a low of 67 degrees. And that concludes the five-day AccuWeather forecast. And we'll now move on to the lottery picks. For the Massachusetts Lottery, in Keno, the most recent drawing numbers, 2611847. In Mass Cash, the most recent drawing for last night, Wednesday, August 30th, the numbers are 2, 8, 13, 22, 35. In the Wheel of Luck, the most recent drawing, 6, 7, 2, 6, 1. In Powerball, Wednesday's August 30th drawing, numbers are 4, 13, 35, 61, 69, and the bonus number is four. For the Mega Bucks Doubler from Wednesday night, August 30th, the numbers are one, four, 28, 34, 38, 48. And number nine for the doubler number. In the numbers game, for Wednesday, August 30th, midday drawing, the numbers were 7675. And the evening drawing numbers for last night, 4108. Again, in the numbers game, Wednesday, August 30th, midday drawing numbers were 7675. And the evening drawing numbers were 4108. In the Lucky for Life drawing for Wednesday, August 30th, the numbers were 6, 8, 14, 39, 40, and a bonus number of 13. Moving on to the Cape Cod Times local and regional stories. Yarmouth Resort will not be used as shelter. By Denise Coffey. Plans on hold to house migrant and displaced families at resort. 
by the Cape Cod Times USA Today Network. Out of Yarmouth, the Healy Driscoll administration has put on hold a plan to use the Yarmouth Resort as a temporary shelter for migrant and displaced families. The decision comes after town officials and state representatives notified the governor's office that the resort did not have a certificate of occupancy. State Representative Christopher Flanagan, Democrat Dennis, said state officials told him Wednesday they are putting the Yarmouth Resort shelter location on hold. He said the state would contact him, Yarmouth town officials, State Senator Julian Sear, Democrat from Truro, Representative Kip Diggs, Democrat from Osterville, if they move forward on the plan. Town Administrator Robert Rittenauer, Jr. said problems with the location predate this migrant shelter issue. He said there were significant alleged zoning violations at the site, no active certificate of occupancy, and that property owners have been unresponsive to code-compliant officials in town. They, parentheses, the state, rightfully placed their proposal on hold while they examine these issues, Rittenauer said. I think there's a lot to examine. Yarmouth Resort owner disputes zoning violations. Ashok Patel with Jamson Hotel Management disputed claims that the resort had no certificate of occupancy. He said it was issued in May 2023. He said there are ongoing discussions with the town and state about using the resort as temporary housing. There is nothing physically wrong with the building, quoted Patel. Quote, it's more the use of the building. That's what we're trying to determine and have a modification of. In 2005, the property's owner, Miracle LLC, sought a special permit to transition to a condo motel. The Zoning Board of Appeals approved the petition but imposed conditions on that approval, including one that requires the rental of privately owned units to be done through a motel management company. Some units were bought by individuals, but most are owned by one company. Despite ownership agreements, the overall property is required to be operated in a certain fashion, Rittenauer said. Quote, they have failed to follow the requirements of that special permit decision allegedly, Rittenauer said. That is the basis for the violation notices that the facility has received. Yarmouth Resort failed an inspection, town officials say. The property failed an inspection, and notice of that failure went out on August 17th, he said, adding that the owners have not followed up with town officials. The town received word that the state planned to use the Yarmouth Resort as a temporary shelter on August 23. Quote, it's complicated and thorny, and rightfully state folks are looking at those issues, Rittenauer said. Current Yarmouth Resort residents will not be asked to leave. There are currently about 25 to 30 people residing in the building, Patel said, adding no one will be displaced if migrant families arrive. Quote, we'll keep everyone that's there in addition to bringing other relief efforts in, he said.
The Healy administration declared a state of emergency on August 8th regarding the rising number of migrant families seeking shelter. Since 1983, the state has had a right-to-shelter law that requires state officials to provide shelter and necessities to homeless parents with children, pregnant women, and migrant families. Flanagan said money is set aside in the state budget that municipalities can tap to offset the costs of the program. Supplemental funding is available to school districts that have students housed in temporary emergency shelters, which can be used to cover daily costs, educational support, and transportation. In the photo, by Marilee Cassidy of the Cape Cod Times, plans to temporarily house migrants and displaced families at the Yarmouth Resort on Route 28 in West Yarmouth have been put on hold due to zoning violations at the motel, according to Yarmouth town officials. Our next front page feature story is What to Know About State Emergency Shelter Program by Zane Rizak of the Cape Cod Times USA Today Network. The state has tapped 120 shelter units on Cape Cod to house migrants and displaced people as demand for the Massachusetts Emergency Assistance System grows. The number reflects scattered apartments, congregate shelters, and rooms in motels and hotels. Joint Base Cape Cod is also at capacity, sheltering 62 families. Earlier this month, Governor Maura Healey's administration declared a state of emergency, citing an influx of migrants seeking shelter and services as the state already faces an affordable housing crunch. Then, she said that included nearly 5,600 families or more that 20,000 people in state shelter, including children and pregnant women. Healy called on federal government to speed up work authorizations and shore up financial help. Why Massachusetts faces an emergency shelter crisis. The crisis is twofold. More migrants are fleeing their home countries and seeking shelter in Massachusetts. As a right to shelter state, Massachusetts legally must provide eligible families with shelter through the emergency assistance program but local people priced out of the housing market amid soaring rents also need help, according to a spokesperson for the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities. Why are motels on Cape Cod being used as emergency shelters? The Massachusetts emergency shelter system has been in place since the 1980s, but over the past year, the demand for family shelter has stretched supply. Quote, we are now sheltering families more than ever before, said the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities spokesperson. As congregate and scattered sites fill, the state has turned to motels and hotels as a last resort across the state to meet capacity demands. Where on the Cape are migrants and displaced people staying? On Cape Cod, migrants and displaced people are being housed in Bourne, East Ham, Hyannis, and North Falmouth. However, people staying in East Ham are due to be transferred to another site off Cape. 
In Yarmouth, state officials eyed placing up to 100 displaced and migrant families at the Yarmouth Resort, a motel with condominium ownership at 343 Route 28. But the plan was placed on hold when it surfaced that the building did not possess a certificate of occupancy, according to State Representative Chris Flanagan. How do you qualify for the emergency shelter program? In order to qualify for the Massachusetts emergency shelter system, people must meet several requirements. Those within a certain income level with children or who are pregnant may be eligible. For those without U.S. citizenship, some documentation is required. Non-citizens qualify if they were, quote, lawfully admitted for permanent residence or otherwise permanently residing under color of law in the U.S., according to the state's eligibility guidelines. How much does it cost to run the emergency shelter program, and who pays for it? The state has said it is spending $45 million per month to house and provide for migrants and newly displaced people through its emergency shelter program. The bulk of that money is coming from the state, according to the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities. Healy's administration has urged the federal government to provide additional help. On August 18th, Healy and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced that the Federal Emergency Management Agency awarded $1.9 million for shelter and transportation in Massachusetts for newly arrived migrant families. In the photo... The state has said it is spending $45 million per month to house and provide for migrants and newly displaced people through its emergency shelter program. In other regional and local news, a day on the water with top shark researches by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times USA Today Network. Atlantic Ocean off Monomoy. On board the Aleutian Dream, a 24-foot research vessel for the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy during the white shark season here, State Division of Marine Fisheries researcher Gregory Skomel late on Monday morning squinted at the patchy blue sky. Quote, find us a fish, Wayne, he said, watching from under the bill of his Massachusetts Marine Fisheries ball cap as a small plane moved against clouds splashed overhead like spilled milk. The hopeful appeal for a great white shark sighting directed toward the pilot of the uh, Cetabria N1592X aircraft, Wayne Davis, could have been uttered by any one of the four research team. Members, also including Volunteer Research Assistant and Conservancy Board member Brian Hansen, Conservancy Research Coordinator Ashley Novak, and Aleutian Dream Skipper John King, waiting aboard the boat as it rose and fell with the ocean like a fishing bobbin just offshore of, of Monomoy Island. It was more than three hours into a white shark tagging and research expedition that left at 8.30 a.m. from Ryder's Cove Landing in North Chatham. Davis had spent that time flying back and forth along the coast between Nauset Beach and Monomoy, looking for sharks, but dark and opaque waters and early morning cloud cover made the task difficult. 
An initial sighting just beyond North Beach Island at 8.58 had, for a few exhilarating moments, raised everyone's hopes as King sent the boat nearly flying over the waves to catch up with the shark. But it was to no avail as the animal slipped away into black water before the team could reach it. And so the arrival of noon found them all waiting. A waiting game. This is the reality of the Atlantic white shark research being done off Cape Cod, now recognized as a world hotspot for the protected species. Quote, there's a ton of waiting. It's not like it's nonstop action, Hansen revealed. The team, which was sharing the hunt on Monday with two shark tour outfits that had boats on the water and planes circling, was anxious for some shark action. Usually, they head out two or three times a week during the season from about mid-June to November, but frequent bad weather this summer has kept them off the water more than they'd like. It's also been a bit disappointing on the tagging front. The research in large part relies on funding untagged white sharks and attaching acoustic and camera tags to collect fine-scale data about the shark's environment and behavior. We haven't tagged a shark in several trips, Hansen said. As of Monday morning, the team had successfully tagged only five white sharks since their expeditions began in June. Quote, we'll have years where we'll tag 25 to 35, Hansen said, so we've got work to do. Low shark activity on Cape could be related to fewer seals, maybe. For some reason, Skomel said, Quote, it has been a slow year for the Cape's white sharks, though the usual peak time is only just beginning, so there's some hope still for a good tagging season. It's possible the low shark activity so far could have something to do with the seals the sharks like to eat, Scomo speculated, noting that some of the plane pilots earlier in the summer reported seeing fewer seals than usual. But there are, quote, so many factors that could be driving the slow season, he stressed, and it will take some data analysis as well as a better understanding of what the seals are doing. Finding the sharks is not an easy task, even though a recent population study estimated that at least 800 individual white sharks visited the waters off Cape Cod over a four-year period, and the team has tagged more than 300 of them. Quote, everybody gets the impression immediately there are 800 sharks out here, parentheses, at the same time. That's not the case, said Scomo. The sharks come and go, some just stopping by and then heading elsewhere, some sticking around for weeks. Some come back year after year, and others are only occasional visitors. It's the scientist's job to understand them better, most importantly to learn the fine details of their comings and goings and minute-to-minute, even second-to-second, predatory behavior. The goal is to use that knowledge to inform public safety and management policy. If anyone's going to unravel the mysteries of the local white shark population, it'll be this research team, said Hansen, noting, quote, arguably the best scientific research that's being done is being done right here. It starts with the tagging, though, and as they awaited a sighting on Monday, Skomel added, quote, I'm kind of anxious to get tags out. Just the shadow in the water.
The sharks are difficult to spot from the deck of a boat, which is the reason they use a spotter pilot. From their vantage point, quote, literally, the sharks are just a shadow in the water. They're hard to see, said Scomo, whose book about the work Chasing Shadows was just released in July. During their outing Monday, Hansen deployed the team's DGI Phantom Pro 4 version 2 drone a few times in hopes of spotting a shark. It's one of Novak's favorite tools. Quote, with the drone, it's amazing. We can cover so much area and there's a lot of great data that comes from using a drone, she said. As the research coordinator, it's her job to record myriad observations like wind speed, wave height, and cloud cover. When the team is in pursuit of a shark, she records everything from the initial sighting time to the number associated with any newly deployed tags, what time they're deployed, and even how many photos and videos are taken. Print is a cute um, quote. It's to basically paint a really clear picture of everything to jog our memories. Some days are really busy and it all blurs together, she said. From zero to two in 20 minutes. Speaking of busy, things finally got going for the team on Monday about half past noon when a shark was spotted nearby. At 12.33, they were hot on its tail. Scomel dipped a painter's pole with a video camera affixed to the end into the water and got the re requisite recording of the shark while Hansen took photos and Novak dropped a hydrophone over the side of the boat to determine if the shark was previously tagged. Finding no tag, Hansen helped Scomel switch his video pole for the tagging pole with its sharpened tip. By 12.38, the new tag was deployed, and the researchers let out a round of cheers, high fives, and exclamations about the beauty of the shark, estimated to be about 11 feet in length. They had little time to soak in their success before a second untagged shark was sighted at 12.47. Again, the small deck became a flurry of activity as Davis deftly maneuvered the boat through tight turns to keep it alongside the animal. This shark, estimated at about nine feet, was gregarious, staying close to the surface and even airing its dorsal and caudal fins, something that, quote, you don't get to see that much, Hansen said. The shark was tagged at 12.53 and was gone by one. Again, cheers and high fives, and immediately researchers began discussing the encounter as if reviewing the play-by-play -play of an exciting football game. A repeat encounter thanks to Shark Tour Boat. It wasn't the end of the team's Shark Encounters Monday either, as a shirt third shark was soon sighted not far away by one of Captain Cullen Lundholm's Cape Star Charters Shark Tour boats. Usually, the research team hangs back to allow the charters to view sharks they are the first to get to. It's out of a sense of mutual respect and community out on the water, where Skomal said, well, everybody knows everybody. Hansen explained that the team has shared the waters more and more frequently with chartered shark tours. Quote, with the exposure and the knowledge about what we have here and the uniqueness of it in the world, it's grown in popularity, he said. On Monday, the researchers were invited to come get a look. The shark turned out to be one the team tagged on August 15th last year, a shark named Major Pro Dude. 
This time around, the scientists observed the shark had a fresh scar on its head, still pink and healing, and they took a new video to add to the shark's dossier in their database. All it takes is one, a successful day on the water. Skomal said he never gets tired of the work. Quote, all it takes is one. It fires you right up, he said. It just requires patience. The team has a record of six taggings in one day. The way this summer has gone, though, Skomal was more than satisfied with Monday's results. Quote, it wasn't nonstop action, but it was a successful day, he said, as King powered the vessel back through Chatham's south inlet just past three. Quote, I'm happy with it. Plus, there are still several weeks for more outings. He's hoping September and October are good months. In the photo, Brian Hansen, a volunteer research assistant and a board member of the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, prepares a tag secured to the end of a long pole. State shark researcher Gregory Skomal uses the long pole to jab the tag onto the shark as it swims by the boat. Two sharks were tagged during a trip by the, the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. Photo by Marilee Cassidy, Cape Cod Times. Our next front page feature story is entitled, Heroic Good Samaritan Helps Cape Cod Crash Victims and Their Dog, by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times USA Today Network. In Bourne, when Twilight Cofield witnessed a multiple car crash near the Sagamore Bridge on August 18th, she didn't hesitate to help. The nurse practitioner, who has worked at Massachusetts General Hospital for 20 years, went to a wrecked car containing Joe Ambash and his wife, Lillian Weigert. What she didn't expect was being called into action to save Berkeley, the couple's dog. Ambash was driving a BMW X3 when it was hit head-on by a vehicle traveling in the opposite direction. He and his wife, Charlestown residents who had been vacationing in Chatham, suffered serious internal injuries. Another driver was also seriously injured in that crash and was taken to the hospital. Quote, All of a sudden, out of the blue, a Lincoln Navigator cuts across the two lanes. They were going the other way, Ambash said in a telephone interview. Quote, I don't know how it happened. I just looked up and I saw this gigantic car barreling into us. Cofield stayed with the couple at the request of a Massachusetts state police trooper. As Cofield asked the couple medical questions and reminded them not to move, Ambash and Weiger worried about their Bernadoodle Berkeley. He had been riding in the back seat. Somehow the dog got out of the car, and someone had the presence of mind to leash him to the bridge railing. A Bernadoodle is a cross between a Bernese mountain dog and a poodle. Quote, she said, I love dogs. I have dogs. I'll take the dog to the vet, Ambash said. Ambash was taken to Beth Israel Hospital in Plymouth, Weigert to South Shore Trauma Center in Weymouth. Ambash was transferred that same night to Brigham and Women's Hospital. In the meantime, Cofield took the dog to her veterinarian in Arlington. 
Her vet said Berkeley needed emergency treatment, so Cofield brought him to the veterinary emergency group in Cambridge where Dr. Dana Perry took over. Quote, he was weak and could barely stand, Perry recalled in a telephone interview. The dog's gum were, gums were white, his heart beat high, and he kept falling over, all signs of internal bleeding, Perry said. An ultrasound of the dog's abdomen showed a lot of fluid that turned out to be blood. Before Perry could administer any treatment or transfusions, he had to have the owner's permission. Cofield had taken Ambash's contact information and was able to get his okay for transfusions. In the meantime, Cofield contacted the couple's good friends in Watertown. One of them, Karen Rubisek, was able to get to the hospital and stay with the dog, relieving Cofield of her duties. Rubisek was moved by Cofield's generosity of spirit. Quote, are there really people like this left in the world? Rubisek said when a Times reporter asked her to call to ask her about the incident. Berkeley's bleeding stopped. He was much brighter, alert, and eating on his own the next day, according to Perry. When feeling up to snuff, 66-pound Berkeley loves chasing bunnies, his owner said. Rubisek brought the dog to her partner, Alan Geismer, who was taking care of him until Ambash and Weiger get back on their feet. They are still in terrible pain, Ambash said. Perry has been an emergency veterinarian for nine and a half years. While he never knows what's going to come in the door on any shift, he called this a unique case. Quote, the woman, parentheses, Cofield, was obviously amazing to do that, he said. Quote, she didn't even know the people. It's pretty heroic in my mind. Ambash is eternally grateful. During their calls and texts back and forth, he asked for Twilight's full name and address. All she did was respond with a heart, he said. Quote, she's a lovely person, he said. In other regional and national news, Idalia turns to Carolinas. System remained hurricane as it entered Georgia by Terry Spencer of the Associated Press. Perry, Florida, Hurricane Idalia tore into Florida at the speed of a fast-moving train Wednesday, splitting trees in half, ripping roofs off hotels, and turning small cars into boats before sweeping into Georgia and South Carolina as a still-powerful storm that flooded roadways and sent residents running for higher ground. Quote, all hell broke loose, said Bilan Thomas of Perry, a mill town located just inland from the Big Bend region where Idalia came ashore. Thomas fled with her family and some friends to a motel, thinking it would be safer than riding out the storm at home. But as Idalia's eye passed over about 8.30 a.m., a loud whistling noise pierced the air and the high winds ripped the building's roof off, sending debris down on her pregnant daughter, who was lying in bed. Fortunately, she was not injured. Quote, it was frightening, Thomas said. Things were just going so fast, everything was spinning. After coming ashore, Idalia made landfall near Keaton Beach at 7.45 a.m. as a high-end Category 3 hurricane with maximum sustained winds near 
125 miles per hour. The system remained a hurricane as it crossed onto Georgia with top winds of 90 miles per hour. It weakened to a tropical storm by late Wednesday afternoon, and its winds had dropped to 65 miles per hour by Wednesday evening. As the eye moved inland, high winds shredded signs, blew off roofs, sent sheet metal flying, and snapped tall trees. One person was killed in Georgia. No hurricane-related deaths were officially confirmed in Florida, but the Florida Highway Patrol reported two people dying in separate weather-related crashes just hours before Idalia made landfall. The storm was bringing strong winds to Savannah, Georgia, Wednesday evening as it made its way toward the Carolinas. It was forecast to pass over Charleston, South Carolina, early Thursday morning before turning east and heading out to the Atlantic Ocean. Italia spawned a tornado that briefly touched down in the Charleston suburb of Goose Creek, the National Weather Service said. The wind sent a car flying and flipped it over, according to authorities in eyewitness video. Two people received minor injuries. Along South Carolina's coast, North Myrtle Beach, Garden City, and Edisto Island all reported ocean water flowing over sand dunes and spilling onto beachfront streets Wednesday evening. In Charleston, storm surge from Idalia topped the seawall that protects the downtown, sending ankle-deep ocean water into the streets and neighborhoods where horse-drawn carriages pass million-dollar homes and the famous open-air market. Preliminary data showed that Wednesday evening high tide reached just over 9.2 feet, more than three feet above normal, and the fifth highest reading in Charleston Harbor since records were first kept in 1899. Florida had feared the worst while still recovering from last year's Hurricane Ian, which hit the heavily populated Fort Myers area, leaving 149 dead in the state. Unlike that storm, Idalia blew into a very lightly inhabited area known as Florida's Nature Coast, one of the state's most rural regions that lies far from crowded metropolises or busy tourist areas and features millions of acres of undeveloped land. That doesn't mean it didn't do major damage. Rushing water covered streets near the coast, unmoored small boats, and nearly a half million customers in Florida and Georgia lost power. In Perry, the wind blew out store windows, tore sidings off buildings, and overturned a gas station canopy. Heavy rains partially flooded Interstate 275 in Tampa, and wind toppled power lines onto the northbound side of Interstate 75, just south of Valdosta, Georgia. Less than 20 miles south of where Italia made landfall, businesses, boat docks, and homes in Steinhatchee, Florida, were swallowed up by water surging in from Dead Men's Bay. Police officers blocked traffic into the coastal community of more than 500 residents known for fishing and foresting industries. State officials, 500 5,500 National Guardsmen and rescue crews were in search and recovery mode, inspecting bridges, clearing toppled trees, and looking for anyone in distress. 
Because of the remoteness of the Big Bend area, search teams may need more time to complete their work compared with past hurricanes in more urban areas, said Kevin Guthrie, director of the Florida Department of Emergency Management. The National Weather Service in Tallahassee called Idalia, quote, an unprecedented event since no major hurricanes on record have ever passed through the bay abutting the Big Bends. On the island of Cedar Key, downed trees and debris blocked roads and propane tanks exploded. R.J. Wright stayed behind so he could check on elderly neighbors. He hunkered down with friends in a motel and, when it was safe, walked outside into chest-high water. It could have been a lot worse for the island, which judged in, into the gulf, since it didn't take a direct hit, he said. Quote, it got pretty gnarly for a while, but it was nothing compared to some of the other storms, Wright said. In Tallahassee, the power went out well before the center of the storm arrived, but the city avoided a direct hit. A giant oak tree next to the governor's mansion split in half, covering the yard with debris. In Valdosta, Georgia, Adalia's fierce winds uprooted trees and sent rain flying sideways. Jonathan Wick said he didn't take the approaching hurricane seriously until Wednesday morning when he awoke to howling winds outside his home. After rescuing his young nephews from a trampoline in their backyard where the water rose to his knees, he brought them to his car and was climbing into the driver's seat when a tree toppled in front of the vehicle. Quote, if that tree would have fell on the car, I would be dead, said Wick, who ended up getting rescued by another family member. One man was killed in Valdosta when a tree fell on him as he was trying to clear another tree out of the road Wednesday, said Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk. Two others, including a sheriff's deputy, were injured when the tree fell, Polk said. More than 30,000 utility workers in Florida were gathering to make repairs as quickly as possible in the hurricane's wake. Airports in the region, including Tampa International Airport, plan to restart the commercial operations either Wednesday afternoon or Thursday. By midday Wednesday, more than 900 flights had been canceled in Florida and Georgia, according to tracking service FlightAware. At 8 p.m. EDT, Wednesday, Tropical Storm Idalia was about 60 miles west of Charleston, South Carolina, the National Hurricane Center said. It was moving northeast at 21 mile per hour. In the photo by Joe Burbank of the Orlando, Orlando Sentinel via AP, Rebecca Blackwell, AP. We are now past the halfway point in our reading of the Cape Cod Times, Thursday, August 31st edition. I'm Diana, your reader for today, and we are now going to proceed to the obituaries. Um, the first would be, there are three today. The first would be Carol A. Parentheses Keen Morrissey. Out of South Dennis, Carol A., parentheses, Keene Morrissey, 85, a longtime resident of South Dennis, formerly of Waltham and Miramar, Florida, passed away Sunday, August 27, 2023, surrounded by her family, 
Born in Waltham, she was the daughter of the late John W. and Margaret M. Nolan Keene and the beloved wife of the late Frank Morrissey. Carol was also predeceased by her brother, John W. Keene. Carol was a graduate of Waltham High School and worked for a brief time at John Hancock Insurance in Boston. Her love of dance led her to sign on with Royal American Shows, where she traveled the country as a dancer for close to 30 years. It was during her time as a dancer that she met her husband, Frank. In her retirement, Carol spent the next 30 years working for Shaw's Supermarket, first in Waltham and later on Cape Cod. She was very involved as a volunteer with the Dennis Public Library spending countless hours with friends making crafts and fundraising for the library. Carol is survived by her brother, Bob Keene, and his wife, Penny, of South Dennis, her sister, Peggy Bannon, and her husband, Tom of Framingham, and many nieces, nephews, and dear friends. Family and friends will honor and remember Carol at one of her favorite places, West Dennis Beach on Cape Cod. A celebration of life will be scheduled at a later date. To share a memory with Carol's family, kindly visit www.mccarthyfh.com. Our next obituary for today, August 31st, Thursday edition of the Cape Cod Times, is John Beryl Jenkins. From Palm Beach Gardens, John Beryl Jenkins, age 97, previously from Stewart, Florida, and Pocasset, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully under hospice care on Saturday, August 26, 2023. John was born the son of the late Herbert and Mildred Jenkins, parentheses Churchill, in Buzzards Bay, Massachusetts, on February 25, 1926, one of six children, he was predeceased by his brothers, Robert and Kenneth, and his sisters, Marjorie, Carol, and Lucia. John was a native Cape Codder and raised in Buzzards Bay, attending Bourne High School and graduating in 1943. John excelled in baseball, and in July of 2004, he was inducted into the Bourne Braves Hall of Fame for his standout contribution. After high school, he enlisted in the Navy and served his country from 1943 to 1946. Following his service, he attended Bates College and graduated from Nichols College in 1950. In 1951, he married Marion, parentheses Midge, Johnson, who passed away in January of 2018. After 66 years of marriage, he worked for many years at the Bourne Town Hall as tax collector, followed at Sandwich Cooperative Bank as branch manager in Buzzards Bay and Pocasset. In 1983, he semi-retired to Stewart, Florida. John and Marion, both proud w- World War II veterans, like so many of the, quote, greatest generation, went on an honor flight together from West Palm Beach to Washington, D.C. to see the World War II Memorial. John, as most remember him, was an avid New England sports fan and an extraordinary non-Agerian bowler scoring an average of 185. 
He will be sorely missed and is survived by his four daughters. Nancy Jenkins of Livermore, California, Diane Jenkins and her husband James Peters of La Pointe, Wisconsin, Marcia Walsh and her husband Michael of Harwichport, Massachusetts, and many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. John will be laid to rest in a family cemetery in East Bridgewater, Massachusetts at a later date. In lieu of flowers, please consider making a donation in John's memory to Hobie Sound Methodist Church, 1011 Southeast Federal Highway, Hobie Sound, Florida, 33455. John Beryl Jenkins, age 97, previously from Stewart, Florida, and Pocasset, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully under hospice care on Saturday, August 26, 2023. John was born the son of the late Herbert and Mildred Jenkins, parentheses Churchill, in Buzzards Bay, Massachusetts, on February 25, 1926. One of six children, he was predeceased by his brothers. Robert and Kenneth, and his sisters Marjorie, Carol, and Lucia. Our third and final obituary reading for today is John, quote, Jack Harold McKinnon out of Hingham. John Jack Harold McKinnon of Hingham in Osterville passed away peacefully, surrounded by family, on August 27, 2023. Jack was reunited in heaven with the love of his life, his wife of 54 years, Rosemary Thomas McKinnon. He will great, be greatly missed by his six children, John McKinnon and his wife, Karen of Duxbury, Kevin McKinnon and his wife, Maria Del Carmen of Marshfield, Mary Ellen McBride and her husband, Timothy of Hingham, Michael McKinnon and his wife, Kenna of Oak Park, Illinois, Julie Houle and her husband, Aaron of Hingham, and Thomas McKinnon and his wife, Danielle of Duxbury. He's also survived by his 21 beloved grandchildren, many adored nieces and nephews, foster grandchildren, and too many friends to count. He was predeceased by his parents, Clarence and Catherine McKinnon, his brother Kevin McKinnon, and nephew Ryan McKinnon. Jack was born and raised in Dorchester and was a proud graduate of Boston College High School and Boston College. He could often be found entertaining friends and family at BC football tailgates every fall. All were welcome as Jack never met a stranger. He enjoyed 37 years working as a CPA at Pricewaterhouse, where his legendary career is still talked about today. A consummate giver, he was always quick to donate his time, expertise, and money to those less fortunate. He has served on the boards of BC High, Catholic Charities, Emmanuel College, Labor College, Nativity Preparatory School, Notre Dame Academy, and Pope St. John Twenty-Third National Seminary. He was also an active member of the Order of Malta and served as president of the Boston College Alumni Association. In 2012, he received the St. Ignatius of Loyola Medal from BC High for his lifelong service to others. Jack lived life to the fullest, a lesson that will continue to be shared by all that love him.
Relatives and friends are respectfully invited to attend the visiting hours on Thursday, August 31st from 3 to 7 p.m. at the Church of the Resurrection, 1057 Main Street, Hingham. The funeral mass will be celebrated at the Church of the Resurrection on Friday, September 1st at 11 a.m. Burial in St. Paul Cemetery, Hingham. In lieu of flowers, expressions of sympathy may be made in Jack's memory to the McKinnon Family Scholarship at Boston College High School, 150 Morrissey Boulevard, Dorchester, Massachusetts, 02125 or www.bchigh.edu. Give. That concludes the reading of the obituaries from the Cape Cod Times, Thursday, August 31st edition. Moving on now to another national story. Judge declares Giuliani liable in defamation case by Eric Tucker of the Associated Press. Out of Washington, a federal judge on Wednesday held Rudy Giuliani liable in a defamation lawsuit brought by two Georgia election workers who say they were falsely accused of fraud, entering a default judgment against a former New York City mayor and ordering him to pay tens of thousands of dollars in lawyers' fees. U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell said the punishment was necessary because Giuliani had ignored his duty as a defendant to turn over information requested by election workers Ruby Freeman and her daughter Wandria Arshe Moss as part of their lawsuit. Their complaint from December 2021 accused Giuliani, one of Donald Trump's lawyers and a confidant of the former Republican president, of defaming them by falsely stating that they engage in fraud while counting ballots at State Farm Arena in Atlanta. In a statement Wednesday, the women said they had endured a, quote, living nightmare and an unimaginable, quote, wave of hatred and threats because of Giuliani's comments. Quote, nothing can restore all we lost, but today's ruling is yet another neutral finding that has confirmed what we have known all along, that there was never any truth to any of the accusations about us and that we did nothing wrong. We were smeared for purely political reasons and the people responsible can and should be held accountable, they said. The ruling compounds the legal jeopardy for Giuliani as he and Trump are among 19 defendants charged this month in a racketeering case related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. It also creates the potential for a massive financial penalty for Giuliani as the case proceeds to a federal trial in Washington to determine damages he may be liable for. He will have a, quote, final opportunity to produce the requested information known under the law as discovery or face additional sanctions. In the meantime, Howell said, Giuliani and his business entities must pay more than $130,000 in attorney's fees. Quote, donning a cloak of victimization may play well on a public stage to certain audiences, but in a court of law, this performance has served only to subvert the normal process of discovery in a straightforward defamation case with the coke, the concomitant commitment, necessity, 
necessity of repeated court intervention. Howell wrote, Howell said that aside from initial documentation production of 193 pages, the information Giuliani had turned over consisted largely of, quote, a single page of communications, blobs of indecipherable data, and a sliver of the financial documents required to be produced. Giuliani has blamed his failure to produce the requested documents on the fact that his devices were seized by federal investigations in 2021 as a part of a separate Justice Department investigation that did not produce any criminal charges. Ted Goodman, a political advisor to Giuliani, said in a statement that the judge's ruling is, quote, a prime example of the weaponization of our justice system where the process is the punishment. This decision should have been reversed as Mayor Giuliani is wrongly accused of not preserving electronic evidence that was seized and held by the FBI. Last month, Giuliani conceded that he made public comments falsely claiming the election workers committed ballot fraud, but he contended that the statements were protected by the First Amendment. Howell said that the argument has, quote, more holes than Swiss cheese and suggested Giuliani was more interested in conceding the workers' claims than actually producing meaningful discovery in the case. Quote, yet as taking shortcuts to win an election carries risks, even potential criminal liability, Bypassing the discovery process carries serious sanctions, she said. Moving on from national news stories, we will conclude today's reading of the Cape Cod Times with Ask Carolyn by Carolyn Hacks. Should teen girl apologize to grandpa who slapped her? Adapted from an online discussion. Dear Carolyn, About a month ago, my mother had a procedure scheduled in my brother's metro area, about four hours from my parents. The plan was for my parents to stay with my brother and his family for about a week. My mother experienced complications and was in the hospital while my dad was staying with them, which was stressful and open-ended. It came to a head one morning over breakfast. Between work, my mother and the kids' stuff, They didn't have time to make dinner and eat it together, so my sister-in-law planned DoorDash. My father said my older niece, 15, should cook dinner when she gets home from school. My sister-in-law said she can't because she has two school projects due the next day. My father reiterated his point. My niece said he can make dinner himself if he wants a home-cooked meal. My father slapped my niece in the face. My brother and sister-in-law kicked my father out of their house. My brother still deals with our parents at the hospital, but refuses to allow our father around his children. I flew out to get my father into a hotel and generally help. It is very obvious my father is experiencing a change of personality consistent with early-onset dementia. Here is my perspective check. I think my brother is overreacting. I think an apology from my niece to my father for smarting off would go a long way. 
I suggested this to my brother to smooth things over, and he refused it as an option. My siblings support my brother. I feel that I'm alone in getting help from my father and that my family is fragmented over something that isn't that big of a deal. Can you or your readers give some perspective here? Sign Perspective Check Carolyn replies, Dear per Perspective Check, how your brother and his wife protect their kids, and from what, a sexist, abusive grandparent or a dementia-violent dementia one, are none of your business. I could get well into the weeds on details, but then we'd both be in the weeds on stuff that's beside the immediate point of your parents' health logistics, which are your business. You just don't get a vote about your dad staying in your brother's home. So here's my advice. Drop it. Don't opine on it ask about it, or try to fix it. It's done. Train all your attention on the work of Team Sibs. What care your parents need, who is willing to give it, how and when. Quote, okay, dad needs X and has to go to Y, and brother isn't an option. That's it. Straight up facts. Those are where you live now. This may seem weird because it's ignoring the elephant, Plus, we make sense of the world through talking about things. But nothing can make this situation worse, faster than you're rolling in with a should canon. Especially demanding apologies. EGATs. Reader's thought. Can you see that your niece's parents are teaching their teenager that it is never okay for a man to assault her? If they had told their daughter she should apologize, they would teach a teenage girl that it was her fault a man hit her in the face. Think that through. This concludes today's reading of the Cape Cod Times, Thursday, August 31st edition. And this is your host, Diana. Thank you for listening and have a great day.